0: So much to our Patreon members who make doing this podcast possible. I'm Melissa Ryan, and I'm so excited about today um, interviewing one of my uh, long time uh, friends and uh, one of my favorite researchers on extremism in the fi- far right, David Nywert. Hello, David.
1: Hello, Melissa. How Hello. are you?
0: I am good. Uh, so, David, you and I have known each other for a long time from the early days of the Netroots. Uh, yeah. I know you were a uh, uh uh your one of your first blogs covered the far right in the Pacific Northwest. Uh mm-hmm. you were managing director of Crooks and Liars. Now you're at Daily Co's as their extremism writer. Um, David has also written. And I
1: was at SPLC for five years. So. Okay.
0: Well, yes. Well, that's not <laughs> oh, quite oh, net rootsy, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, David was also a correspondent at Southern Poverty Law Center covering the Pacific Northwest. Um, and he's the author of, of two incredible books that I think anyone who is interested in learning more about far right extremism uh, Alt America uh, and then The Eliminationists. And I actually read them in reverse order, and we'll talk about them both a little today, but I, I highly recommend them both. So, David, you grew up in Idaho, um, and I, I think it's not a coincidence that we see a lot of uh, far right activity bubbling up around in Idaho and the, the Pacific Northwest. Uh, growing up, were you exposed uh, to extremism, and how do you think that affected your your career path in researching and covering it?
1: <laughs> yeah, I swam in it practically, partly because when I grew up in Idaho in the '60s, Southern Idaho in particular. Uh, which is dominated by the LDS church. Mm. Um, I I think something like 70% of my graduating class was LDS at high school. Uh, And there was this huge connection between the John Birch Society and the LDS church in those days. Uh, In fact, it was called the Church Birch Connection and it was very well known. And I would say most of my neighbors... (laughs) Uh, had Cleon Skousen books in their homes, you know, The Naked Communist and stuff like this, Uh, these various, uh, very, uh, very far right conspiratorial books. And so I was exposed to conspiracy theories and conspiracism at a very early age. And I, I think that possibly has a lot to do with my immunity to it, because I realized pretty early on that it was bogus, and kind of set about even in high school, uh, debunking some a lot of this stuff, um, and then I had the in very early in my newspaper career um, in, when I was 19 years old, 20 years old, I was the um, mm-hmm. I became the editor of the little daily paper in Sandpoint, Idaho, which is up in the Panhandle, about 20 miles north of a place called Hayden Lake. And Hayden Lake, as it happens, was the home of uh, what was known as the Church of Jesus Christ Christian uh, Aryan Nations. And it was really uh, – it was the area, better known as the Aryan Nations compound uh, in Hayden Lake. And they had moved in there just – they moved into the panhandle just about the same time I was uh, starting there, was working there in that paper. And so we had uh, – we had a lot of experience with them. We were dealing with, you know, the uh, the disturbance that they were creating, but we were also trying to figure out, you know, how do we deal with them? So the publisher and I, you know, and like I said, I was all of, of 20, 21 years old, so I didn't have very well-formed judgment at that point. Uh, but the publisher and I sat down and said, tried to figure out how we would cover these guys, and we decided we would just not cover them. Mm. <laughs> So strategic because, silence. Yeah. Well, we thought, you know, they just want publicity and we're just not going to give it to them, right?
0: Did it, did uh, other news outlets make similar choices? I,
1: I think some of them did. You know, what, what really kind of happened over time was that in northern Idaho, the papers, including like the Lewis and Tribune, uh, which did cover them uh, pretty assiduously, uh, started to feel that. Uh, the presence of, of the Aryan Nations was uh, giving the entire region, and particularly Northern Idaho, a bad name, and uh, we didn't. We wanted to counter that by just tamping them down a lot. And over time, I found that that actually newspapers in the region started actively suppressing that content um, and being hostile to people who did cover it. Uh, which is not the way you want to go. And and so we, yeah, you know, I mean, we made this decision, and within two years we were awash in all these hate crimes uh, and culminated uh, culminating in, you know, the rampage of the Order uh, in 1984. The Order was this terrorist group that operated there, actually out of Medellin Falls, which is on the other side of the Washington border. Uh, but they were all a bunch of guys who... Uh, met regularly in Hayden Lake at the uh Aryan nations compound and had you know organized there and they uh went on this uh, eight month rampage crime rampage of uh, robbing armed car armored cars and uh banks and uh most infamously they assassinated uh radio talk show host named alan berg there in denver colorado uh in 84 a jewish guy who liked to make fun of the nazis on the air and um they cornered those guys and they finally the fbi ran them all to ground in in december of 84 and by then of course i i had actually moved on from from the old daily b the sandpoint daily b and uh um, but I'm sure that they had long since dropped the policy of not covering those guys because you couldn't, I mean, there was just too much crime Right. and, but it was really an important lesson for me, you know, to understand that, that these, these guys actually, um, want you to not pay attention to them. They actually want you to try to ignore them because they, because it, it gives them cover and more, more importantly, I think it's really important to understand that these guys all see themselves as the saviors of their communities and secret. This is what the the community really wants. So when communities stand up and say, "No, this is not what we're about," it really uh, undermines their whole worldview and, uh, and and undermines everything that they're about. So. Um, you know, having communities organize and, and stand up to them is is really really essential for dealing with them effectively. And um, you know, they they want to uh, pretend that you know that the, the community supports them. So if you shine that spotlight on them uh, and just keep it on them, uh, they it it's the. Most effective thing you can do now. Obviously, because you are shining light on them, there are going to be people out there who go, "Huh, that, uh, that kind of interests me," and and actually join their ranks. You know, that's yeah. How do of- you
0: how do you balance that out? I, I am fascinated by this because I feel like so much of what we hear from extremist researchers now um, is not to amplify this content, not to amplify this rhetoric. Mm-hmm uh because you are you are just giving uh folks a platform i mean i th- particularly we see this issue yeah. around whenever you have a terrorist that has a manifesto which i, I think uh, joan donovan rightly called them you know press kits uh for that person's uh-huh. point of view so how do you balance out covering uh extremism which is a which is as you pointed out a very real danger to people a danger to communities without glorifying and without amplifying
1: it's the same principle as as you have even when you're just covering them even before they become violent and they're just organizing which is to say you you don't make it context free you don't make it uh, you you have to be very uh, assiduous about providing the readers the essential context which is that these people are hateful they're very well known for spreading hate they're attached to crime all of the usual things that you can say about right-wing extremists um, ha, ha, it has to be in those stories. You can't just uh, go in and drop in and do a he-said-she-said said, uh, quote exchange and, and expect people to get the balance. Um, and you certainly don't want to go in, dive in and just uh, provide them with their quotes and let them talk, right? Right. Um, that's... <laughs> That's basically being PR, and and, and so yeah, I, I think journalists can do this very easily if they just if they have they have but they have to be really thorough, which means that you have to understand the history of of these things. You have yeah. to understand the background. You have to understand the context in which they are speaking, and you need to provide that context to your readers so that they will understand it as well. And, and so, uh, to in my mind, in my view, that's um, certainly been, over the years, the most effective way I've been able to find to, to sort of counter that tendency. Um, I mean, really, the, the people who are attracted to these ideologies are people who just get a very sort of skim, very facile exposure to them. Um if your first exposure to them is uh, the kind that, you know, helps you understand that eventually this stuff leads to genocide.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, then, then unless you're a psychopath, uh, you're going to be repelled by that. And, and that's the thing. Eventually some, a lot of the people that are going to be uh, attracted to it, even when you provide that full context, are going to be who are going to be people who probably would have eventually gone there anyway because they're sociopathic.
0: I so. do you ever worry? So I, we see with the uh, w- with these manifestos, and they've been top of mind for me a lot lately. But there's always a lot of call of like, don't read it, don't share it. Um, mm-hmm. And I completely mm-hmm. understand, don't yeah. share it. That makes complete yeah. sense. But I really worry sometimes, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this when we tell people don't read something. Uh, you know, the yeah. their immediate reaction is, oh, well, someone doesn't want me to read this. I I need to go read it. So I wonder if you have any thoughts on <laughs> on the language about you know why it's important not to amplify a document like that while also not making it sound you know super enticing by telling people not to read it.
1: Well, it's I mean, again, you can write about uh Brenton Terrence manifesto, uh by you know again providing readers context, and in fact. Uh, one of the best having read terence manifesto i can tell you that it's very easy to do that sort of thing because in fact it's really a a very turgid horrible piece of writing kind of like uh the turner diaries which was the the blueprint of the 80s and 90s that the order used for creating a race war and is still very popular with these writing extremists um they're really it's really bad writing it's, it's also
0: not that interesting. I mean, I've read yeah. all of these manifestos now and the themes don't vary much. It's not that Correct. we learn much for them. And I almost wonder if rather than focusing on don't read it, like if there were if there is some messaging around, you know, this is actually you're not going to gain anything from this. It, at the end of the day, yeah. it's very boring and not new.
1: Yeah. And I, I think if we can communicate that, then you're going to be much better off because that's actually that actually is the case. Mm-hmm. You know, that you're, you're actually conveying reality and truth to your readers, which is what you want to do as a journalist. So yeah.
0: weirdly, I mean, HN threads transcribed into a manifesto are not entertaining reading.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. Yeah. In, in Terrence case, he really was just kind of regurgitating, uh, Anders Breivik. Yeah. So, um, so, 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 yeah, I, I mean, and that's the thing is that they, they, um, So I agree. Don't share the manifesto. I think Berger's right about that. But in terms of um, analyzing it and providing readers with that analysis, I think it's absolutely essential. Um, And for people not to read it and to try to pretend it away is possibly the stupidest thing we could do. (laughs) Uh, We need to pay attention to these guys because they thrive in darkness. So
0: I want to switch tack just a little bit uh, from Idaho uh, to Seattle and Portland, especially Portland. You have covered uh, uh, militia movements and, and radicalization in the Pacific North- Northwest more than anyone. And I think one thing, whenever I link to your work uh, in the newsletter, I always readers are always surprised uh, to find out that, that Portland and Seattle uh, are a hotbed of, of white nationalist activity um and i think berkeley too to a lesser extent and part of what i'm always explaining to them is that you know it's a great place to be provocative um you know there's a reason that richard spencer was was it felt like he was going to berkeley every other week um but for for you who's covered a lot of this i've wondered if you could give some context uh for our listeners about what it is about the pacific northwest that seems to be so attractive for white nationalist activity and recruitment
1: Well, it's actually that it's very white. (laughs) That's the main attraction. Uh, There's uh, very few minorities here. And that was always the attraction. That was why the United Nations uh, set up their compound there in the Idaho panhandle. Uh, They moved up from Southern California because they were trying to get away from all the brown people and uh they've so a lot of the reason that the pacific northwest has always been a favorite place for white nationalists uh to move to not just to move to but to they've got had this long running fantasy which the aryan nations is probably the the first representative of of creating a white homeland in the pacific northwest uh of all white people and this is where this is where, I mean, that's what white nationalism is about, right? Is yeah, creating an yeah. all-white ethno-state, And their plan was always to, well, let's just find a place where it'd be relatively easy to achieve this. And the Pacific Northwest is kind of the, the pick. Um, and it's also important to understand that even though we, that the Northwest is very blue in these urban areas, uh, it's pretty red out there in, in rural areas. It's, Uh, Washington and Oregon both have, you know, really healthy um, uh, liberal populations in their urban areas. But if you get out of those urban areas, uh, it's very, very red. And um, some of it is actually a reaction against those people in those blue urban areas. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's the country mouse versus the town mouse uh, syndrome. And, uh, and you know, there's this visceral hatred uh, of, of folks in the rural areas, particularly if they are regular Fox watchers, you know, because Fox News just constantly generates this uh, culture war between urban liberals and, and rural uh, conservatives. And, uh, it's, it's, you know, part of what they do. So, uh, and I'll tell you, go, go to those rural areas and most of them have the Fox on in their restaurants and on in their homes. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's a lot of what goes on. Um, and honestly, one of the things that, that I think people don't really appreciate is that that's not just with the Northwest. That's actually much of the country. That's true. And it, and Indeed, indeed, even though the, 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 we think of the militia movement as this fringe movement, it's become pretty dang mainstream out there in rural areas, not just in the Northwest, which is where much of it originated, but all around the country. You go around the country into these rural areas and you find people believe this so-called constitutionalist stuff that Cliven Bundy was selling to everybody. Yeah. I mean, I'm Uh, from Kentucky
0: and it's much the same experience. I think, you know, you have Lexington and Louisville, Louisville where I'm from, that are, you know, pretty moderate to liberal areas. And then you have the rest of the state that's deep red. And I think part of the reason that I I became so interested in this stuff, and obviously I don't have the the long history that you do, but I mean, we, growing up, there was a, essentially a guy who identified as a white nationalist slash neo-Nazi next, uh, across the street, whose daughter was about the same age as mine. Um, and certainly I've seen my own family sort of got, not everyone, but members of my extended family, you, you watch the radicalization happen online, um, you know, not just of anti-government, but, you know, a lot of the sort of white nationalist messaging, and it, it can be very unsettling. But I, I think you're right. It's not just isolated to the Pacific Northwest. Um, I think maybe it's also just you cover it so well. <laughs> um, you cover the activity there so, sure. so thoroughly.
1: Well, we, we're an origin point for a lot of this stuff, particularly yeah. the militia patriot stuff. Um, a lot of that did originate in the 90s uh, here out of the Northwest. It was also being generated there in the Midwest, but the uh, Northwest was a, was a huge organizing point, and it has remained so ever since. Mm-hmm. And so that's, it, that's why, I mean, there's actually a much deeper history to all this, that actually there were a lot of Confederate people Confederates after the Civil War who moved to the Northwest. People don't know that Oregon actually, its original constitution forbade black people from living in the state. Um, That 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 was only that that language was only finally removed in like 2000. Yeah. Um, And um, yeah, so there's this real there's always been a deep undercurrent of very ugly stuff going on in the Northwest, even though we have this rather pristine and progressive uh, image. um, It's rather like Twin Peaks in reality. So
0: So let's talk a little bit about political power, because I think traditionally when we think about far-right groups – uh, you know, in America, they've been considered outside of the mainstream. I think the Republican Party might have uh, not discouraged them, but certainly not embraced and encouraged them openly in the way we see now. Um, how have things changed now that we uh, you, you have these white nationalists who have, I think, more power and influence in, in D.C. and in state governments than they've had before? How has this changed how they operate?
1: Well, um... It, they're much more open about it. I mean, it's, they, they, it used to be that right wing organizing was very, very discreet and we had to, you know, really keep our ears to the ground to pick up on it. Uh, now they're, they're very blatant and very open because they feel empowered. Uh, they, they believe, I mean, you know, they, the, <laughs> the president of the country is a guy who calls himself a nationalist. Yeah. And, um, and he's white, so what do you, are you supposed to conclude from that? He he refuses to criticize um, white nationalists. He he won't say the words "radical right-wing terrorist." Uh, he won't. Uh, you know, he he makes excuses for people who commit hate crimes in his names. So I mean, remember in 2015 when those two guys uh, uh, in Boston uh, beat the beat up a, a Latino man said that it was because they were inspired by Trump. Um, and when Trump was asked about it, he said, well, you know, some of my friends, my, my followers are just very, very angry and upset right now. Yeah. You know, he basically rationalized it. Yeah. And, and that's what he's always done. So, so yeah, they, they very much feel encouraged. And, I, you know, I think you can see that just in the, the hate crime statistics that we've had since the election. I mean, we already saw a dramatic increase during the campaign in 2016. And then after he won the election, the first month after the election was, was the largest one-month increase in uh, hate crimes activity ever recorded. Um, just over, you know, over a thousand incidents in the country, which was just astonishing. Yeah. And the the other astonishing component of it, of course, was the number, nearly half of those incidents featured people using either Trump's name or his rhetoric in the commission of the crime. They're, they're, they're openly being inspired by Trump. You know, they're using his name, chanting it, Trump, 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 to threaten people. Or they're saying, Trump's going to send you home. Or, um, you know, very the, the typical kind of uh, white supremacist rhetoric, but with Trump's name attached to it. Um, so I, I think that, yeah, that's... They feel very much empowered by this, um, and there's a, of course a spectrum that we're talking about here. It goes from white nationalists to the uh, who are really the more uh, virulent component, um, over to the the patriot militia movement, which is not quite as virulent, but every bit as dangerous, mainly because they're so heavily armed. And I think there's actually more of them. Um, So, and those people are still, they still occupy that alternative universe I call Alt-America of uh, conspiracy theories and fake news and all the things that um, basically create this alternative universe for them, wherein, you know, uh, the world is run by a secret conspiracy of Jews. So... So yeah, I mean, we, we've got this um, uh, really rising trend and um, it's not being stopped and and it, they feel very much uh, empowered by uh, Donald Trump's presidency and not only Donald Trump's presidency but the absolute, um, the, the basic endorsement of Trump's presidency by every Repub- Republican on the planet.
0: Yeah, <laughs> you know? now, I, I think a lot about... Um, ways that we traditionally would think of the far right building power, you know, through terrorism and these militia movements where they're, yeah. they're building arms. But I think, I think one thing that hasn't quite gotten through in, into the ether in a way I wish it would is, is the way that they, they build traditional political power, that you have white supremacists running for office that are taking over their Republican, you know, uh, working to make inroads in their Republican parties. Um, and I, I really think, uh, you know, Trump, mm-hmm. Treats the far right uh, as a valued constituency group. You know, it is it is a yeah. choice not to uh, denounce neo Nazis after Charlottesville. It's kind of the one thing a president is supposed to do is bring the country together. And Trump, it's not that Trump doesn't know that he just willfully ignores it. Um, and right. it, it's interesting to me. Where do you see as we see white supremacists both continue? you know, they're building incredible uh, militia power. Again, we have more incidents of of terrorism and and lone wolves. Uh, And then you also see them building power. And I think where we would think of a more uh, traditional way, Uh, where do you see this heading? What is the future of this?
1: Um, I think 2020 is going to be very dangerous, especially around the election. Um, I don't believe Donald Trump will ever concede Um, I think even if he is wiped out in an electoral landslide, he will claim that it was fraudulent. Um, And I believe, you know, he's already uh, pointed in the direction of these militia patriot types as being the ones who are going to uh, rise up to defend him. He's talked about the bikers for Trump, which is very much part of this, uh, that universe.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: And, um, Yeah. Well, and let me tell you, it's not just there's a symbiotic relationship there because Trump has been Trump can say that. But these guys have actually been hankering for a civil war uh, for a very long time. And it's the talk about it's getting really intense out there right now. Yeah. Among, Among these patriots, they're all talking about I mean, they really can't wait for the day. When they can go out and just start blowing liberals away,
0: they—you know—I always talk about their—you know—the right wants a civil war, and they're just so angry at the left because we won't start one.
1: Well, that's what they're accusing us of doing, constantly, right? Of starting a civil war. Uh, They—they accused the left of trying to start a civil war when Obama was president by supposedly forcing um, healthcare down our throats. (laughs) <laughs> they and they've accused us of trying to start a civil war since Trump was elected by, uh, talking about impeachment of the man. Um, so it, you know, you can't, the, you, there's nothing you can do if you're a liberal, that's not going to be interpreted as you're trying to start a civil war because <laughs> even though we never talk about the civil war. They do constantly. Yeah. And so, uh, Everything we do anymore is interpreted as trying to start a civil war (laughs) because that's – that actually is convenient for him.
0: Yeah. I mean I think it's interesting what you said about Trump. You know, people forget in 2016 – He was also sowing the seeds for if I lose, people won't accept it and major voter fraud. And I think, you know, I I think one of the things that I get most frustrated at at the American left is we are trying to preserve systems rather than acknowledge the reality uh, that, you know, the other, the right has has just abandoned them wholesale. Um, You know, watch the news of, of any daily activity in Congress and you sort of see that. Um, with thinking about a, a bleak 2020, um, and, uh, you know, what we're facing in threats. If you were advising members of Congress in, in, you know, in the democratic party right now who are just, you know, trying to get things done, uh, what would you advise them to do?
1: Oh, um, listen to Liz Warren. <laughs> I, I think she's right on all this stuff. I think she's right about impeachment. I, I, look. Um, and honestly, I, she's also one of the first people to come out and say that we need to, uh, attack white nationalism and trying to make it a presidential campaign issue because I think it needs to be. And, um, it's not necessarily that I'm, I mean, she's risen to the top of my list partly because she's done this. Uh, but I think it's going to be incumbent on any Democrat to actually uh, ensure that, um, the rise of white nationalism and domestic terrorism associated with it is a national uh, issue that we discussed during the presidential campaign because it's going to have to be. And um, interestingly, yeah, I did a post at Daily Coast about this uh, about a month ago and got a lot of interesting reaction from a lot of. Liberals who think, oh, we, we don't want to stir the pot. We don't want to create this problem. We don't, you know, we, that's just going to draw out the, uh, the crazy uh, white people and, and, and give fuel to Trump's fire like we did in 2016. You know, they, they're afraid of a recurrence of the deplorables episode. Um, and I'm personally of the opinion that, you know, we got to do what's Right. Um, we can't be strategizing our way out of this. We have to, we have to uh, stick to what is actually right for the country. Yeah. And having impeachment hearings is what's right for the country. Uh, tackling um, white nationalism is what's right for the country. And these kinds of th- – so uh, I think it, uh, Democrats really have to show sort of their moral spine because, frankly, a lot of the reason people don't vote for Democrats is that they think they're spineless. And uh, I think it's time they showed some spine. So um, yeah, I, 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 because I also believe that in the end, uh, doing the right thing is the right thing politically. I think it'll, uh, I think it will work out. But um, on the other hand, I've been wrong before. So <laughs> well, I, th- I'm not hired as a strategist or a, a political thinker. But I, but what I can tell you is how I feel about what is right and wrong for this country. And trying to pretend white nationalism away, trying to pretend that he that what he has done, what Trump has done with the Russians uh, is uh, something that we can just kind of deal with during the election, I think is insane. I think that there have to be hearings. Um, And I think we have to to be smart about how we, you know, we we have to show some spine. Yeah. Uh, because they're going to attack us no matter what. And, yeah, we're already uh, in the
0: fire. the The white nationalists have been unleashed.
1: Well, we'll and just look at look at how the the, the difference between Democrats and Republicans uh, post Mueller, uh, after the Mueller report, Republicans are just super aggressive about uh, pushing out this message that that it vindicated Trump and blah 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 and so on and so forth, and Democrats have been incredibly passive. About just kind of okay, well, whatever. Uh, we're just gonna keep moving on. And um, I think I think it'd be really helpful if there were some Democrats out there who are as good at creating the drama as the Republicans are. Let's just put it that way.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, are there are there any? I, I always like feel weird asking this question, but I think it's very important. Um, what do you think? Um, that uh, Democrats who, sh- who, in your mind, should be creating some more drama, what are some things that they could learn um, from the other side and how they operate?
1: Um, well, the main thing is um, don't – well, what you actually learn from how the other side operates is that they are not interested in fair play. They're not interested in uh, the, us- the usual democratic – exchange where we make compromise and that sort of thing. Um, It's been been made incredibly clear over the past 10 years. The Republican Party is only about uh, obtaining and wielding power and abusing it uh, to their own, uh, you know, to as much extent as they possibly can, because, um, you know, I mean, that was part of what Barack Obama did was he kept sticking his hand out to the other side you know, and getting a bloody stump back and wondering why. Um, I think that what we have learned from watching Republicans in power is that, um, you know, we don't have to be ruthless like them, but we have to understand that they are ruthless and there's no point in trying to play uh, nice with them. Just play hardball, go out and beat them, you know, (laughs) just go beat them. Because that's the only thing they understand.
0: All right. Well, I I uh, think we've got time for just one or two more questions. So sure. at, at Hope Not Hate, obviously, the, the audience is global uh, and, and very heavily European. Uh, one thing that uh, I know you and I have both talked a lot about is um, how the far right are organized globally, I think, in a way that the left has not. Um, how do you think that the Internet... Uh, has been uh, more responsible for uh, making this movement more global, or is it something that's always been happening under the radar? It's just most of us haven't been aware of.
1: Well, I, I think the internet's uh, empowered uh, all of this in ways that we haven't e- e- expected. Um, I will say, you know, yeah, all of this has been laying dormant for a very long time. I mean, we're really talking about trends that. Um, have been uh, sort of inherent in our cultural soil for uh, a very long time, and uh, particularly the white nationalist worldview and the um, sort of uh, more than that, the authoritarianism. And that's not just America; that's that's all around the world that this stuff has been that the seeds have been laid. And really, the seeds were laid long before any of us were born by. Uh, The fact that at one time white supremacy was the predominant worldview and really what it's trying to do is revive itself. So um, this is, you know, that's kind of what we how we have to approach it, I think. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I do I I just think that eventually we have to um, look it in the eye and, and not be afraid to call it out for what it is.
0: Got it. Well, one final question. Um, we, we've obviously talked a lot about bleak and darkness, uh, <laughs> but, but I am told it's good to end these on a hopeful note. Uh, <laughs> I, it's hard for you and me, right? We're, <laughs> we don't really traffic in the positive. Um, but is there, is there something in the last few years, in the last couple of years that, that's given you uh, optimism or made you feel a little more hopeful about the future?
1: Sure, the the 2018 election results were very very positive, especially if you if you looked up and down the the roster at all the results around the country and then the total numbers. Uh, it was pretty uh, obvious that there was a really massive wave there, and and I think that wave is still building. Um, I think numbers are very much on the side of. Uh, of Democrats uh, in 2020, and uh, I think it would take an extraordinary set of circumstances for them to lose. Um, mainly because uh, Donald Trump is a historically uh, horrific president. Uh, the, he's, he has no business being president. He has, and we've made a horrible mistake in ever uh, even thinking that the man should even be nominated let alone actually be elected. Um, So I believe there's going to be a pretty large wave. Um, I think as much as anything, um, it's the authoritarianism that Trump represents that people are going to reject. Um, But it is a dangerous time because authoritarianism is always innate in the American psyche. And if he's capable of, um, of sort of pulling it off, um, by appealing to Americans' innate authoritarianism, then it's. I think that the whole democratic experiment is probably likely over, uh, because it does mean we've given way to from democracy to authoritarianism. So, um, but I, but I really do believe that that uh, there's a really it, it's it actually looks very much like Americans are awakening. Um I think that it helps that that uh the left is actually, you know, the progressive left is um making real headway within the Democratic Party and becoming a a secure voice, uh not just with Bernie Sanders, but I do think with Elizabeth Warren and uh, Kamala Harris and people like that who are actually very very progressive so and, and I think that those uh, are actually looking like you know the best hope so um,
0: it's certainly a more progressive party than when <laughs> you know the early days in the net roots
1: uh, oh, where we ever thought it could be <laughs> right well I was at the Netroots roots in Chicago when all of those candidates showed up
0: oh yeah
1: um, you Me know too. we had all all eight of them, and and uh, that was pretty amazing, and and um, it meant that you know they took us seriously, which they don't anymore. Uh, <laughs> although it'll be interesting to see how many show up this summer, I suppose.
0: Yeah, I, I, I can't say too much of that as I, as I'm on the board now, but I'm I'm hoping I'm hoping for a, a similar turnout and a, a similar importance. But certainly, I right. think we have we have more candidates that are are with us on issues than that uh the the netroots such as we are cares about than we we had 10 years ago.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. And even and it was I I thought it was always worth noting too that you know, even though the netroots were the progressive uh gathering, we still had, you know, plenty of people from the moderate wing of the Democratic Party showing up there, including Bill Clinton. <laughs> um so And because they understood we weren't a threat, that we were there to, you know, help support them. And I always thought that, you know, the one time Clinton showed up, he he made a terrific point, which is that, you know, if you want these, you want Barack Obama, which is who he was talking about, to to do these progressive things, you have to get out there and support him and organize him and create the consensus that will uh, enable him to push those progressive policies. And, you know, what, we didn't do that. Which is why Obama lost in 2010 or, or why we lost the Congress in 2010, because uh, progressives thought, oh, well, they just acted like, well, we've we've won and that's it. yeah. And and they didn't come out and keep fighting. So um, that's it's going to be really key, of course, uh, if we win in 2020, as I do believe we will. Uh, to not let our guard down, to keep fighting and to build, keep building that consensus. Uh, I, I think that actually in 2018, we started building that consensus. And I think in 2020 is our chance to really solidify it mm-hmm. and then begin moving forward. But one of the r- real things, one of the reasons I do this work, uh, Melissa, is that I've always, always believed that uh that even that progressives you know they're great and i really love their policies uh but they're so forward thinking and they're so that they get and get so caught up in their causes that they don't really understand their enemy they don't really understand what they're up against they certainly don't take the time to understand the radical right which at the end of the day really is the the enemy because yeah. that's who's out there on the sort of uh far end of the of the Spectrum pulling the fulcrum their way. And that, so I think it's really under, important that people understand how the radical right works and why it's their enemy, if they are progressives. Uh, but they don't understand what they're up against. And so uh, we they get really naive about what they're up against sometimes. And they assume that just because, yeah, they've elected uh, this person to office, that that's all they need to do. You know, that's, and that's, unfortunately, that's not the way the world works. That, that you elect these people to office to then enact the consensus that you have to go out and build.
0: Well, I think that is a good stopping point. Uh, lots of work, lots of work done, but as you point out so much more to do. Uh, I want to thank David. David Neuart, Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, again, I would highly recommend David's books, Alt America and also The Eliminationists. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, if you like this podcast, if you like the newsletter, Control-Alt-Right-Delete, please consider becoming a member on Patreon. Uh, I'm Melissa Ryan signing off and talk to you again soon. Thanks.